Hello and welcome to episode 26 of Soho Bites. Soho Bites is the podcast in which we talk to people who love Soho and people who love film. My name is Dominic DeLaghi and a listener has pointed out to me that there's a restaurant in New York at JFK Airport, in fact, called Soho Bites. I assume it's that other Soho with a capital S and capital H. I know I should probably take some kind of legal action, but I'm going to let them off. Live and let live. That's my motto. But if you ever happen to find yourselves at JFK, you, as a Soho Bites podcast listener, can go to the Soho Bites restaurant and quote promo code yummy yummy in my tummy to claim your exclusive 0% discount. I don't know what the weather's like where you are, but here in London, home of the original Soho, it is hot, hot, hot. In fact, you might even say it's too hot to handle, which, by an amazing coincidence, is the title of the film we're looking at in this episode. Is it a coincidence, though? Or do I carefully choose the film for each episode to match the prevailing weather conditions? No, it's a coincidence. As the lockdown restrictions continue to be dismantled bit by bit, it was glorious to be able to go to a screening of a film. And not just any film, though, and not just any screening. Last week, we hauled ourselves out to Fontaine's Cocktail Bar in Dalston to attend a lobotomy room screening of Too Hot to Handle, the 1960B movie starring Jane Mansfield. The Lobotomy Room is a regular film night hosted at Fontaine's by DJ, journalist and promoter Graham Russell. I took my trusty tape recorder along to the screening, of course, so in the first half of the programme, we'll be hearing a little bit of that evening and about the Lobotomy Room film nights from its daddy, Graham Russell. Why is it called Lobotomy Room, you may ask? Well, I did ask that, so stick around. And for the second half of the show, the traditional film chat section, I met up with Graham again, this time in Soho a couple of days later, to talk about Too Hot to Handle and his deep and abiding love for it. So, press pause on your device, grab yourself a white lady, other cocktails are available, and come back for all that stuff I've just been talking about after this jazzy flourish. The Lobotomy Room is a regular film night with a motto. Bad films for bad people. And its Facebook page says it's faster, further, filthier, it's sleazy, it's grubby, it's trashy. You'll love it. A tawdry good time guaranteed. Graham Russell, the sleazy evil genius behind this night of foul debauchery, began doing guest DJ spots at Cockabilly, London's only queer rockabilly night back in 2008, and he gradually worked his way towards doing his own club night and now a regular film night, which is staged once a month in the Bamboo Lounge at Fontaine's. Graham describes the lobotomy room as a low-brow, mixed-slash-queer, mondo-trasho, punkabilly booze party. I don't know what most of that means, but I had a very good time. On our arrival in the Bamboo Lounge, my friends and I were amused to see... Sorry. I mean... On our arrival in the Bamboo Lounge, my friends and I were shocked and appalled to be assaulted by the sight of several oiled, half-naked men wrestling with each other. This was on the screen, though, not in real life. It's quite a small venue. I later learned that these were films made back in the 1950s by photographer and filmmaker Bob Miser, 
who often got himself into legal difficulties for producing homoerotic material with his company, AMG, which stood for Athletic Model Guild. Cocktails were ordered. I can report that the dirty martinis were delicious and came with some of the fattest olives I've ever seen. And then we settled ourselves down for the film. <laughs> okay, well, thanks everybody for coming. Um, coming to the lobotomy room. Too Hot to Handle has a complicated history. I'll just talk you through some of it briefly. The quality of this DVD is decent, it's tolerable, but <laughs> to put it into context, it's a film that's kind of um, fallen through the cracks, it's unloved, it's forgotten, which is kind of what we specialize in here. Uh, so you know that if you've been here before. The, um, this was a full, not Technicolor, but Eastman color film when it was first issued in 1960. But the version that is circulating in the UK, that's readily available, is black and white. But in Europe, you can buy uh, DVDs that are in glorious full color, but they're only available dubbed in German. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> so that's the trade-off. <laughs> so I think you'd rather, you'd rather watch it in English, in black and white. So the director, this is a competently directed film. The director is Terence Young, who would go on to direct multiple James Bond movies after this, including Dr. No and From Russia With Love. In terms of Jane Mansfield's career, first of all, I mean, Jane Mansfield is the lobotomy room saint, you know, our kind of icon. I mean, we had uh, special events celebrating the 50th anniversary of her death and stuff like that. So she is uh, beloved here. And this is a good role for her. It's not a comedic role. It's a dramatic role. And I think she acquits herself pretty well. She has some really good dramatic moments. She gets to cry. She gets to sing and dance. Um, she wears really good painted-on outfits. Um, and in fact, watch for the dress she wears in the Too Hot to Handle number. It's a softer core version of the one she wore in her Las Vegas act around this time. They had to add some like, extra detailing uh, for the censors, but um, it would have just been flesh-colored chiffon with a bit of sequins scattered around. As for the rest of the cast, it was Christopher Lee, who by now had already played Dracula for Hammer Horror, and uh, he'd go on to do you know, more Hammer Horror and play villains in James Bond movies and stuff like that. The Austrian actor, Carl Bohm, he plays the journalist in this. He would go on to do Peeping Tom within the next year or so, which is a really major British horror film. It's like the British equivalent of Psycho, and have a long, distinguished career in European cinema and work with people like Fassbinder. And then we come to Barbara Windsor, who um, was only 22 in this, and this is long before Peggy Mitchell on EastEnders. Um, and her voice in this might surprise you, because she's not talking in a Cockney voice at all, to the extent that I wonder if she's been dubbed by someone else. But I mean, she would have had elocution lessons. She went to drama school, so maybe it is. Uh, I'll let you be the judge of that. I would love to say we see glimpses of real-life Soho in 1959 in this film, but we really don't. It was all filmed on a, on a soundstage somewhere in like uh, Shepperton or Pinewood. But there is a sequence where Jane, it's like a kind of suspenseful sequence where Jane is filmed actually in front of the Houses of Parliament. And we can see her juxtaposed against Redland and buses and black cabs, and, and it's really bizarre to see her in that context. But um, anyway, I really appreciate you guys coming. Uh, keep following us on social media to find out what we're showing next. And uh, yeah, you can hit play. Ruby, thanks. And 
we were off and the film seemed to be very well received by the audience. 93 minutes later, Too Hot to Handle was coming to its breathless conclusion. I don't want to give too much of the plot away, especially the ending, but you can probably tell from this dramatic and emotive closing music that it's all deeply moving stuff, as Midnight Franklin, played by Jane Mansfield, stands alone in the darkened club. She picks up a rose from the floor, gently kisses it, and heads slowly towards the exit. Once we'd all managed to stop weeping, I grasped my microphone and shoved it forcefully into the face of a young chap who'd been watching the film for the very first time and asked him what he thought. This, as it turns out, was the podcaster Nick Randall of the Scratch and Sniff podcast. I quite enjoyed it. I mean, it's of its time, obviously, but I knew nothing about it. I thought it was going to be a bit, oh, I don't know, of its time. But then it suddenly got really exciting. Which and there was a rival ganglang war. And Where did you find it exciting? <laughs> Bear in mind I have had a few cheeky um, cocktails tonight. Okay. Um, you're implying that it, I shouldn't have felt like this. No, I just think it's, it's alcohol-induced excitement. Yeah, possibly, but I was trying to judge it on its merits of the day. And I thought... Uh, there was a bit of a message there about, you know, exploitation of women and and it was the, the gangland stuff was very exciting. I wanted to I wanted the main guy to find out who the baddies were. And he did, and then there was a gun and blah 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 boom. And I like the set, I like the, the Soho set that was done in Shepherdon or wherever it was. It looked really good. I mean it it was clearly on a budget the film, but I felt that they did did it's pretty well. Budget. Yeah. Oh they got to the, the pawns back on. Oh, we got the porn back on now. But Nick Excuse has to me. go now. <laughs> <laughs> Whoopsie porn. At this point, because of the heady combination of the 1950s homoerotica and the cocktails he'd drunk, Nick became incoherent and insensible, so I managed to grab Graham as he passed by instead, who spirited me away to a small backstage room. Tell me where we are. I'm looking at leopard print, I'm looking at a pink flamingo, <laughs> a gentleman in some kind of sailor cap. What, what is, where, where, why have you brought me here? What's going on? Well, I mean, you know what? The This film takes place in a, in a Soho burlesque joint in 1959 called the Flamingo Club. We're in, and a lot of the action takes place in the strippers' dressing rooms. And we're in a strippers' dressing room right this moment that's painted pink with pink flamingos. Yeah. What more do you want? I feel, I feel how much honored more, to be How here. much more authentic yeah. <laughs> to the spirit of the film could we be? Uh, there's a picture of Jane Mansfield on the wall right there. I mean, she is like the patron saint of Lobotomy Room. And I mean, Lobotomy Room, it's a film club, but it's also a dance party. It's, I do, I DJ. Uh, but that's been on hold for quite a while now because of the pandemic oh i forgot about that pandemic thing. Yeah, yeah yeah so really i mean even the film club has been on ice for a long time and we had to cancel our so the film week. club so so lobotomy room is a is a film club it's a film club and it's a separate i mean i started out here doing a djing and doing a dance party and then and then ruby the the proprietress of this place she was she was thinking you know we've got a projector we've got um seats and everything and a screen and I said well you know I've got ideas I'm happy to take it on so I kind of took over I hijacked the film club aspect as well and we call that you know lobotomy room goes to the movies or the lobotomy room film club but it's both I do uh I wet my beak in a bit of everything you know 
when I can, whenever, pande whenever the pandemic permits me to. Um, but um, so, yeah, it's like. So why lobotomy room? Why? I mean, that name came back. I'm Canadian and um, I grew up watching SCTV. It was, it was like the Canadian version of Saturday Night Live, but a lot better, a lot funnier, okay. a lot crueler, a lot blacker. Like black comedy. So a current affairs satirical thing. Yes. Yeah. And um, they did give these like fake ads for um, this hotel or this club. And they'd say, and our, and our punk night, the lobotomy room downstairs. And I thought, oh my God, lobotomy room. If I ever do a club night, I'm going to call it lobotomy room. So, you know, like 30 years later, that's what I, that's what I did. And, and it grew out of, you had a, something called Cockabilly? Yes. Uh, you did used to do, I mean, um... I think my DJing debut was probably at a gay rockabilly night called Cockabilly. You know, that, that sort of set me on my path. And I, I like that whole imagery of, um, you know, homoeroticism, sleaze, lowbrow music like surf, rockabilly, punk, rhythm and blues, twist music, whatever. So one of the things I'm committed to in every venture I do is... Um, I want to bring back sleaze. I want to bring back adult content, and um, but hasn't it hasn't it, isn't adult content more prevalent than ever these days? Well, but not on the I don't know not on phone. the club scene. I don't feel like it is, and I mean, um, I mean sometimes I also show will show uh, Betty Page stripping and dancing, or you know Tempest Storm and everything. But I really do. I like I like things to be confrontational, and so. Uh, you know, I just think I think uh, male nudity is it still challenges people, and I do want to challenge people. You know, you're coming to the film club. That's great. Uh, I expect you to be hip enough to to handle it. <laughs> you know, it uh, it is hardcore. It is hardcore, and that's uh, that's what I'm here for. That's what I aim to do. You know. And a couple of days later, I met up with Graham again to talk about the film in a bit more detail, but first, a bit of background. Hot, hot, much too hot to handle. The ladies are dish. Too hot to handle. In the late 50s, Jane Mansfield was a major Hollywood star, and Too Hot to Handle, known in the US as Playgirl After Dark, was one of two films she made in the UK, in 1959 and 60. In both of these films, she played roles that were slightly different from the comedic sex kitten part she was known for. The other of these two films, The Challenge, or as it's called in the US, It Takes a Thief, is a bona fide noir thriller in which she plays the manipulative boss of a criminal gang, using her womanly ways to seduce and corrupt unsuspecting male victims. In Too Hot to Handle, although it's still somewhat of a departure from her usual type of role, we are in much more familiar Jane Mansfield territory, as we're treated to a couple of musical numbers in which she sashays her voluptuous curves around the stage of the Pink Flamingo strip club, delighting the dirty old men in the audience. Too hot to handle Her tenderest touch A tropical thrill Directed by British director Terence Young, Too Hot to Handle centres on the rivalry between two neighbouring Soho strip clubs. The aforementioned Pink Flamingo is owned by suave Johnny Solo, a Sandhurst type played by Leo Gen, and is managed by the humorless Novak, played by Christopher Lee. 
Over the road, we have the Diamond Horseshoe Club, run by Johnny's nemesis, the spivvy Diamonds Dielli, played by Sheldon Lawrence. Into the mix is thrown a French reporter, played by Austrian actor Karl Heinz Böhm, who's in town to do a story about Soho nightlife. Come in, no one's taking a bath. Hello, Nelly. New problems? Bank book, Danny. No, old problems. Oh, this is Mr. Robert Juvel of Paris Quick. This is Paul Novak, my manager. Hello. He's going to write about us. You know, the sort of thing. Starts as a boost, ends as a knock. Oh, sure. Read all about it. Sexy, sordid Soho. England's greatest shame. Send for the missionaries before it's too late. Forgive my manager, Mr. Chauvel. When he was a child, he was bitten by a newspaper. Well, they always say the English have strange eating habits. There are all sorts of subplots and suggestions of backstories in this film that never quite satisfy, and it sometimes feels as though an attempt has been made to squeeze too much into it. Some of the supporting characters and their stories do get fleshed out and resolved, such as that of a character called Ponytail, a very young wannabe exotic dancer played by Barbara Windsor, who catches the sinister eye of a local gangster. But much of the goings-on backstage at the Pink Flamingo doesn't quite ring true. There's an ongoing feud between different groups of dancers, which we never quite get to the bottom of. And we're shown brief snatches of some of the performers' lives and their motivations, but never more than that. There's one who's stripping to pay her way through art school, for example. And in the case of one character, Cynthia, the dialogue hints at a backstory so dark that we're left wondering if we'll ever find out more about her. But we never do. I was in a juvenile court once, and there was this old dish. She must have been a hundred. And she looks at me through her glasses and she said... My dear, if you don't mend your ways, I'll fear you'll end up an outcast from society. Me, a refugee from 14 camps, and she's afraid I'll end up as an outcast from society. Well, after my martini hangover had subsided, it takes at least 48 hours at my age, I got together again with Graham to get his take on Too Hot to Handle. We met up in the church of St Anne's on Wardle Street, and as you'll be able to hear in the background, Quite a few other people had decided to meet there too, including a group of jovial but noisy drunks. I began by asking Graham for a synopsis of the film. Too hot to handle. Okay, so the main plot is there's a violent rivalry between two Soho burlesque clubs, the Flamingo Club run by Johnny Solo. Johnny Solo. Yeah. <laughs> and conveniently, just opposite the street, directly opposite, is the Diamond Horseshoe run by Diamonds Dinelli. These two clubs are sort of battling it out for uh, dominance, I guess. And out of the two, we're meant to sympathize more with Johnny Solo, and he's, he's the more honorable of these uh, two club owners. But what he doesn't realize is his right-hand man, Novak, played by Christopher Lee, Boo. is actually a traitor who is uh, reporting back to Diamond Stanelli, and he's in on this attempt to get him out, you know, to take over the scene. That's sort of the main plot. And then after that, there's a surprising amount of subplots crammed into this. It's quite sophisticated plot-wise, isn't it? I mean, the number of plots that kind of intertwine. Yeah, there's a lot going on. There's like a love story between Johnny Solo and his, uh, his um, headlining showgirl, Midnight Franklin, who's played by Jane Mansfield. Same old gentleman Johnny. Nobody ever locks up the place but him. And nobody ever puts out the lights. Silly superstition, I suppose. Mm, I like it. I like to watch you. That's because you've got simple tests. Sure, like you, for instance. Like me. And I don't get it. 
Maybe you walk out of that door and any man in London would be glad to fall into your lap. Suppose I said I don't want any man in London. Only one. Then I'd say you were badly brought up. And then after that, a French reporter, played by Carl Heinz Boehm, I never know how to say his name. The Austrian I it, actor. Yeah, I think it's Boehm. Boehm, kind of okay. Boom. Who went on to do Peeping Tom after this, and then you know a really long, distinguished career career in European cinema, working with people like Fassbinder. Uh, he plays this um, reporter who's come to uh, do an expose on the Soho burlesque scene, and then he falls in love with this mysterious Austrian dancer with a secret past. That's another subplot, and then I guess the other subplot is Johnny Solo has this really sinister, menacing, sadistic investor in the club, Mr. Arpel. He's kind of pimping out his dancers to this investor to keep him happy. And that's unfortunate in that one of these girls is Ponytail, played by Barbara Windsor. So I think those are there's a good three or four plots happening at once. So he's not as honorable as we think he is, Johnny Solo. Yeah, he's like a flood. He's uh, an amoral anti-hero, I guess you'd... Uh, You'd, you'd call him that. Because he talks about, doesn't he, having fought his way up from the bottom. He's not, he's not the officer type that he appears to be. He's kind of, so you must have some kind of street fighting credentials to have got to that position. He's from the school of hard knocks or something. Yeah, like that. yeah. all that <laughs> stuff. University of life. <laughs> so you love this film, don't you? I do. I think, um, you know, I've got a high tolerance for bad movies. More, <laughs> more than a lot of You should work on this program. <laughs> I value it as, as like a piece of pulp you know, pulp cinema, trash cinema. I think it's um, a fun document of its time. I think it's a great star vehicle for Jane Mansfield as well, and I'm, I'm, she's a real fixation of mine, so I love it on those levels. So Jane Mansfield, at this point, she obviously is a big American Hollywood star. She did these two films over here, didn't she? Could you tell me why, how that came about? Why was she hawked out to the UK? And, and could you tell me about the other film as well, this, The Challenge? She was signed to 20th Century Fox in Hollywood. And by 59, things were cooling a bit for her. It was like a lull in her career. There was no projects on the horizon at 20th Century Fox. They just farmed her out to make these films in the UK. I mean, looking back, no one could have seen this at the time, but looking back, it was a sign that things weren't so great for her. And I mean, in real terms, as an A-list star, she had probably 18 good months or 24 good months maximum. So people look at these films as the beginning of her slipping as a major star. And from here on in, it would be more low-budget European cheapy productions. So she came here in 59. I think the first one was Too Hot to Handle, and that was followed by The Challenge. Um, and that's like a heist thriller. It's more of a crime. Th- well, they're both crime thrillers. Yeah. Uh, it's, this one's more about like a heist criminal gang. And she's the leader of the gang, which is fun. That's just a fun idea. She plays like a kind of honey trap girl, doesn't she, in the gang, but also is obviously at the top of the gang. And you know she's, she's serious because she's wearing a brunette wig so, uh, and glasses. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah which, which means that she's been intelligent. <laughs> both of those films were issued in the US under different titles. Too Hot to Handle was retitled Playgirl After Dark, and the challenge was retitled It Takes a Thief. But um, yeah, these do represent like a downturn in her fortunes. Um, And I would say, I do think people overemphasize that when they talk about her, because really, she was more of a media figure or a celebrity, like an all-purpose celebrity. So films were only one part of her portfolio. So whenever they dried up, she was still earning big money doing residencies in Las Vegas, doing nightclub tours. She'd cut the ribbon at shopping centers, at department stores, that kind of thing. 
Um, so she stayed a, a, a major star, a big public figure, a big celebrity, right up until she died. She was still in gossip columns and making headlines and that kind of thing. She opened the um, Illuminations at Blackpool, didn't yeah. she, in 1960? <laughs> She's a bizarre Yeah, yeah. Thought. And she cleaned up doing stuff like that. Two Up Tunnel is obviously clearly a Soho film. The challenge has a little bit, it has a fantastic opening scene where she's in bed with Anthony Quayle and there's a neon out the side of the window and they're smoking in bed and everything. And then she's also, there's, there's club scenes in Soho, so it's also a bit of a Soho film. Was it inevitable that Jane Mansfield, if doing films in England, would do these Soho-type films? Yeah, exactly. And I mean, it's funny to think um, these films could have so easily been made with Diana Doors playing her roles, but, uh, you know, just the way it worked out that Jane was available and was, and was on loan over here doing them. Yeah, I guess the whole sex goddess thing is synonymous with the vice side of Soho, you know, it suits her well. It is fascinating how, um, especially Too Hot to Handle, sort of perpetuates the myths about Soho. I mean, not a single frame of it shot in Soho. And yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I don't think any of it is. It's all done on a soundstage somewhere. But the visual shorthand is neon signs, burlesque houses, and then it's plot elements like organized crime, clip joint hostesses ripping people off over drinks uh, but it ticks all the boxes it and i mean and that would have been it would have been relevant for british audiences but then you think this film was exported to europe and, and america so it's like perpetuating the myth of soho abroad as yeah. well you know there are these different versions that you've touched on i've seen the a color version of this film in german it looks fantastic but i can't understand a word of it and the, one, the version that we've seen, the version that you screened the other night is black and white and looked like a second generation copy as well. Do you know the story behind, how has this come to be? All these different versions of the names and... I do know some of it and it's an, it's an incredibly complicated, uh, there's multiple versions. Just before I left the house I did some last minute Googling and in fact what I've established is the version that's, that's circulating here and that I showed at the club is the American version, it's actually Playgirl After Dark. That's the edit, we've seen the American edit. Okay. It is about 93 minutes long, and the original British version, Too Hot to Handle, is 104 minutes long. So there's been some mi minutes shaved off here and there, and the American version, Playgirl After Dark, didn't even hit the cinemas in the US until 1961. And that was partly because censorship worries. So, so they have more stringent censorship over there. Different. Yeah, the Hays Code was still in place in the U.S. And so there is a striptease number where it's like a harem girl type thing. And the screen keeps going misty and cloudy during that number. And that is, I think, there's a bit too much implied nudity in that number for the American audiences at the time. And they just, that was their solution to make the screen go foggy. And also, why the film's in black and white? Like, I don't know why they would make the American version black and white. One theory, which I tend to believe is, at a certain point, it would have been made commercially available for TV. Everyone would have still had black and white TVs at the time. So a black and white print of the film was created. And that's, for some reason, that's the version that survived. And that would be cheaper to produce, to distribute to TV stations, I suppose, yeah. or something. So that's one theory. And then, of course, there is a German-language DVD circulating, which is in colour, but dubbed into German. But surely in a vault somewhere, there is a pristine Eastman colour, British, uncut, 
English language. There must be. There must be people listening to this programme. Because I know we have listeners from real streets and talking pictures in the BFI. Maybe they know where that film is. That would be amazing to find that. Yeah, I mean, just as an aside, in 1999, the BBC's Arena Strand did a whole series. They did three documentaries around Christmas time, and I watched them at the time on TV. They did a documentary about Jane, a documentary about Diana Doris, and a documentary about Anita Ekberg. And I watched, I rewatched the Jane Mansfield one last night, and they show clips from Too Hot to Handle in color in English. So they might have access. They clearly had access to it because they cut it into this documentary. So it must exist somewhere. But what's sad about a film like this is, you know, it's quite unloved. It's fallen through the cracks. It's probably in public domain on, on some level. It's hard to get someone motivated to invest in a digitally remastered Blu-ray DVD of this, much as I would like it, much as you would like it. <laughs> we're, yeah. we're, we're a niche audience for something like this. The Too Hot to Handle number, where she is the best bit of the film, which is wearing that slinky, invisible spray-on dress, <laughs> and there's those chaps lighting her cigarettes and everything. It's clearly ripped off, or an homage, or whatever, to Diamonds Are a Girl's Best Friend. Yeah. I know that you don't, you kind of prefer her to be judged outside of the, the prism of Marilyn Monroe, but she's obviously aping that. I don't know whose decision that was, but I mean, isn't Jane Mansfield or wasn't she a kind of bargain bucket Marilyn Monroe? Oh, absolutely. And I mean, um, well, one of the things that's interesting is whenever you read um, film books from, say, the 80s or something, and they're very quick to sort of dismiss Marilyn's imitators. And I think. As you dig deeper into these people's films, um, you sort of get to appreciate that actually, Jane Mansfield, Mamie Van Doren, Cleo Moore, Cherie North, whoever you want to cite as an example, they were interesting and unique in their own rights, you know? And, you know, Jane, uh, that's how she got her start. She was almost more like a parody of Marilyn. And I think maybe that's why some Marilyn fans resent her because it's almost like she's taking the piss in some ways. It's almost like a cod sexy. She's sort of doing pretend baby sexy. I always say it's like, you know, sex kitten gone berserk. It's, I don't know, it's, you know, how seriously did people take it or want to take it? I think, you know, she was having a laugh. That's part of her appeal. I think she had an innate understanding of kitsch and camp. Before these things were widespread, I think she just innately knew what they were. And I think she had another, she also had like an innate understanding of stereotypes. And typecasting and how you could make these things work for you. And for a long time, they did work for her. You could say, you know, that uh, we don't know how her career would have panned out because she was dead by 34. But, you know, she was still working. Yeah, she was still working right up till the end. And, you know, maybe not in demand in terms of films, but still in demand in terms of nightclub appearances and that kind of thing. And it wasn't a tragic death in the sense, I mean, obviously it's tragic she was young and she had kids in the car, but it wasn't a tragic death in the sense she she didn't die alone with tablets. It was just a... A freak accident, wasn't yeah. it? Yeah. Well, I mean, she had slid into alcoholism by that okay. stage. So that's quite dark. But, you know, people do bounce back from that kind of thing as well. So she'd be 88 or 89 now. So she's rough. no age these days, though, <laughs> is it? She's rough. She's the same age as Bridget Bardot and Sophia Loren. It would be fascinating to see what would have happened had she survived. Yeah. So this whole thing about her being a gay icon, and there are lots of women become gay icons, you know, ostensibly straight women. People like Judy Garland is, a, is the classic one, and Barbara Streisand, and Bette Midler. Okay. Well. So what is it? What, what constitutes gay iconism? Well, I'm not claiming she, she is for me. I'm not saying she is. Like a, I mean, she's quite niche, you know. She's the thinking man's gay icon, let's say, you know. She's the outsider gay icon. But I mean, 
it's, it's significant that when Kenneth Anger put out that first edition of Hollywood Babylon, it was her he put on the cover. Mm. And whenever John Waters was sort of piecing together his 300-pound drag queen leading lady, Divine, he said, my image for her was going to be Godzilla meets Jane Mansfield. You know? <laughs> um, and Divine's gone on the record saying you know, she was uh, a, a big inspiration. So... With her, I think it's the artifice, the campiness, the kitschiness. She's almost like a drag queen, isn't she? Yeah. I mean, she's incredibly sexy as well, but she, and she was manufactured for that kind of straight male gaze. But it is incredibly over the top. And she makes those cooing noises, and, she's, and it's like, um, she realizes how absurd she Orgasmic is. Orgasmic faces. And, yeah. and she's in on the joke in a lot of ways. So I think it's, it's that side of things. You know, she pushes it so far. So let's move on from Jane Mansfield, because there are more people than Jane Mansfield involved in making this film, obviously. In your blog post about To Hot To Handle, you describe Leo Gen, who plays Johnny Solo, as a having a charisma bypass. Does that sum up your view on his performance? Well, I mean, I'm the first to admit, I don't know much about, I don't know anything about him. But to me, he seems like such an odd choice. I mean, Jane Mansfield is pining for him. And it's hard to see what the attraction is, what the appeal is. He just doesn't seem as tough and sexy. And for a, a 1959 audience in Britain, did he kind of embody those qualities? I mean, I can't see it in, in the present day, but you know, I'm, He's not terrible, uh, but he, he seems like an odd casting choice. I think he's quite terrible. For that role. <laughs> and he has this ridiculous affectation. It's like his, his character is based around him twanging. He's got an elastic band in his hand all the time. You can imagine him kind of saying, well, I think my character would have something that he does, and uh, this is the thing I'm having. Oh, there's an elastic band, I'll use this. It's, oh, so annoying. We're t- constantly being told how suave he is and all this stuff, and I mean, when he calls Midnight Franklin 12 o'clock and all yeah. that stuff. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that is terrible, isn't it? And we've got Christopher Lee, of course. He's, he's kind of doing almost the same role as in Beat Girl. Have you seen, you've seen uh, Beat Girl? I have seen Beat Girl, and I love Beat Girl, and I think it's so fascinating that these films came out the same year, 1960. And it just shows, like, obviously these um, these ideas about Soho were just really in the air. Uh, these two burlesque-themed sexploitation and whatever you want to call them films came out. At the same time, with Christopher Lee playing very similar roles. That kind yeah. of, but, I mean, you know, he specialised in playing sinister, villainous roles. And Beat Girl is also a little bit around the coffee shop scene, which yeah. ties him with other films of that era. It's, well. it's, it's concerned with younger people, for sure, and it's, it's quite a juvenile delinquent film in a lot of ways. It's more post-Rebel Without a Cause, post-Brigitte Bardot. Yeah, the kind of kids looking for kicks kind of thing. <laughs> yeah. I like Beat Girl. I think Beat Girl's a much better film than it gets credit Objectively, for. yeah. They've both got their charms, for sure. And then there's Babs. Barbara Windsor. And she's 22 here, playing 16. And this is quite a few years before Carry On and many, many decades before Peggy Mitchell. Barbara Windsor made all kinds of claims about working with Jane Mansfield. Her idea was Jane Mansfield was threatened by me because I was so young and so pretty. And, you know, I tried, I'm keeping an open mind. Who am I to question it? But, I mean, she does say that Jane Mansfield insisted that we couldn't both have platinum blonde hair. But you look at the finished film, and Barbara Windsor's hair couldn't be much more white than it is, so I'm not sure how that works. And, I mean, in terms of an age difference, it's four years, so I really doubt that Jane was, was threatened by Barbara Windsor's youth and, and beauty, as uh, Barbara Windsor suggests. But there is, on IMDb, it does say that Barbara Windsor's role was bigger, and Jane Mansfield insisted it be cut down. Okay. But once again, I don't see like there's I don't see the proof evidence of that in the film. I think Barbara Windsor's she's a supporting character and she does get plenty of screen time. 
I don't see any like documented proof of that claim, but that's out there, that's in circulation. That I think Midnight Franklin is possibly supposed to be older than 26 because she talks about, she got that scene where Babs says to her, in her terrible accent, she says, oh yes. gee, why do you stay in this business? Yeah. Gee, Miss Midnight, this is the chance I've been waiting for. I know, I even know the dialogue. Baby, I can get you a spot in a movie. Baby, you be nice to me and I'll fix it so you get to be the leading lady in the promised land. And the next morning, they hand you your taxi fare, and it's, don't call us, we'll call you. Well, it doesn't have to be like that. Not always. At least I've got a chance to be seen. Back home, it was just the boys in the street, errand boys with clammy hands, all trying to grow mustaches so they could look older. I mean, what future has a girl got up there? Future? I've seen a hundred girls go out those doors with creeps who called themselves producers, impresarios, and the rest. Little Mr. Fixits, all of them. Some of the girls came back with promises as long as a sly trombone. One came back with a baby. Some never came back at all. But nobody ever came back with a future. And you're not going to be any different, Ponytail. Am I getting through? Okay, Lolita, but watch yourself in the clinches, that's all. Miss Midnight? Mm-hmm. Would you tell me something? After all you said about this kind of place, what keeps you here? I guess that's the $64 question, kid. And even when I'm looking at him, I kind of ask myself the same thing. You know, I never seem to get an answer, except, except that the fish got to swim. And that awful piano music that comes in whenever she's being sincere. Anytime there's romantic, uh, anything romantic happening, that music swells up. Um, well, yeah, I mean, she, for uh, they don't, they never mention how old Midnight Franklin is meant to be, but Jane plays it in a very world-weary. Yeah, she's been around the block a few yeah. times. And a friend of mine who was there that night pointed out that uh, the scenes between. Barbara Windsor and Jane Mansfield have a kind of showgirls quality, like the ones between Elizabeth Berkeley and Gina Gershon and, yeah. and showgirls. Have you got much to say about Terence Young, the director? Not that much. I mean, I think he does a fairly credible job. He, it moves along pretty fast. I almost think, you know how James Bond is like always portrayed as this amoral anti-hero, and that is kind of how Johnny Solo is presented as well, so maybe he's like a proto-Bond. Because uh, he did way. go on to direct some Bond films, isn't he? Yeah, um, he did the early show. ones like Dr. No and From Russia With Love. Yeah. Don't you want to say? Well, I would just say when, you, when you're asking what you like about this film, I do think in the grand scheme of Jane Manfield's career, this film is often singled out as the beginning of her downslide. But it's such a great role for her in that... Um, you know, she is kind of recognized as a brilliant comedian. She's funny. I mean, even her uh, people that don't like her have to admit that. But this is a dramatic role. I think she acquits herself well. Uh, she gets to cry in some scenes. Um, she gets to sing and dance. So if nothing else, I do think Too Hot to Handle is like a showcase for Jane. And it's a shame that more roles like that didn't come along after this, really. Thank you to Graham Russell for coming on Soho Bikes and also for hosting such fun events. Details about the Lobotomy Room film nights and links to Graham's Twitter and blog are on the show notes where you can also find the full-length black-and-white version of Too Hot to Handle. That's all in the usual place. Of course, it's SohoBikesPodcast.com. Also on the show notes at SohoBikesPodcast.com. I might get a jingle made for that. Are links from where you can support the show with teeny-weeny donations. 
And you can also subscribe there too. If you feel compelled to leave us a star rating and a kind review, but don't know how to go about it, I'd love you to do that. So I've made it very easy for you. Just go to ratethispodcast.com. That's ratethispodcast.com forward slash Soho Bites and all will become clear. Remember, you can tweet us with your comments and suggestions for Soho-related films and features on at BitesSoho or email us at SohoBitesPodcast at gmail.com. Soho Bites is produced by me, Damdalagi, and is based on an original idea by Dr. Jingen Young, who has just had a baby. Congratulations! See you soon, and bye for now.